Tim Murphy from over at Mother Jones wants to talk to you about the word oligarch. Like a lot of us, he started thinking about this word a couple years back when Russia invaded Ukraine. And suddenly, oligarchs seemed to be all over the place. It was just constantly, it was just everywhere. I mean, people all over the political spectrum were starting to use the word oligarch. And a White House official tells ABC News the U.S. is expected to announce new sanctions against Russian oligarchs today. Meanwhile, Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. You know, when I think of oligarchs, I think of like a couple of things. I guess I picture a middle-aged guy in a suit, and then I picture him on a yacht. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're thinking about like uh, a Bond villain or, or Kenneth Branagh in Tenet. Is oligarch a dirty word? <laughs> Is it a bad word? It's very much used as a dirty word. And I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's a good word, but it very much has kind of arrived as the the way to sort of separate those rich, powerful people from, from maybe your rich, powerful people. I remember um, there's this moment at the beginning of the Ukraine war where you could track Russian oligarchs and their yachts online. The yacht now docked in San Diego is called the Amadea, and it's spectacular. And, you know, I was watching TV clips from when some of these yachts were getting seized. And what was interesting to me was that the news anchors seemed both fascinated by the yachts and repelled by them. From Sky 10, we spotted just a few of the amenities, such as the helicopter pad, as well as a pool that can be turned into a concert and party deck. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like this incredible wealth, but oh, such such terrible taste, but also I kind of, you know, wish I could keep looking at it. Yeah, and this yacht is massive, 348 feet long. If you take a look. You know, Roman Abramovich's yacht, you'll always hear it's 530 feet long. One of his yachts, the Eclipse, 530 feet, 33 feet long. It has anti-paparazzi lasers. It's got, you know, a submarine, helipad, things like that. If you listen to enough of this old tape, Tim says, you'll get the sense that there's something outrageous about these oligarchs and their yachts. But the thing that kept striking him was how very American all this conspicuous consumption was. You've just done this reporting for Mother Jones all about American oligarchy, basically arguing that we have to see oligarchy as not just a foreign problem, but a domestic one. Because... Americans love super yachts, too. I wonder why it's so important to you to change the vocabulary we use around wealth. There's something very convenient about treating oligarchy as this post-Soviet, corrupt, excessive construct that we're kind of able to wash our hands of. They kind of needed the United States and all of the American structures of wealth and secrecy and power to make those systems hum. Today on the show, our very own American oligarchy and why it's important to call it out by name. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
I wonder if we can start out by talking about where the word oligarch comes from and how it became so divorced in the American mind from domestic wealth. So just start me off. Like, what's the origin of the word? It's Greek. It just goes back to, to ancient Greece, and it's the system of which a few extremely wealthy people are, you know, dominating the, the politics. Has the word oligarch ever referred to wealthy Americans? Yeah, and that was something I was sort of surprised to learn as I just started going back into the archives, is, is that uh, before the Civil War, oligarch was, was kind of one of the words that was used by northern abolitionists and and just opponents of the slave power to sort of describe what had happened under slavery. The idea that the U.S. as a country had just been taken over by the planter class in this oligarchic structure was a very visceral thing. Uh, And this is nobody had any bones about throwing that word around. When did the word oligarch become something foreign outside of the U.S.? As that kind of Reconstruction era faded, um, you start to see a lot of chatter about the systems in other countries. And it's, you know, in, in places like parts of Latin America, you see a lot of discussion of oligarchs. And there's this kind of like othering effect of, oh, well, this is how they do it in these other sort of less sophisticated governments. You know, it's these rich families controlling, you know, the armies and and, and governments and, and things like that. So for, for about a century, it, it's sort of stops being this kind of dominant expression that, that it was before the Civil War and, and becomes much more like a kind of a mark of a backwards government. My understanding is that the first modern Russian oligarch was a guy named Boris Borisovsky. Who was he? Yeah, he was sort of uh, the most vocal face of, of this class of, of oligarchs that arose following the Soviet Union. When I was 14, I plan my life for the next 30 years. In the next 30 years, step by step, I reach what I want when I was just 14. Yeah? And when I recognized that the Soviet Union is starting to collapse, was starting to collapse and so on, I think that uh, everyone that time who really believed in himself at the end of 80s, at the beginning of 90s, was able to do exactly what I have done. He made his money in some kind of scammy, like car manufacturing space, among other things. He was he was sort of interesting, you know, during the Yeltsin era because of his willingness to kind of boast about this oligarchy that they were forming in Russia. He and a number of others teamed up at Davos in the 1990s when it looked like Boris Yeltsin was on the ropes and that he was actually going to lose. And they teamed up to rescue Yeltsin in a way that was like contingent on auctioning off all of these state-owned assets to the highest bidder in rigged auctions. A handful of people could scoop up like all of the assets of the Soviet state on the cheap. So, you know, oil, nickel, zinc, um, what have you. And and after this election and after Yeltsin was saved in the press, this was the new class of oligarchs. That was that was the term that was applied to them. But after Yeltsin's replaced by Putin, you know, things start to change and, and Putin really kind of gets a lot of traction by promising to crack down on the oligarchs. And, and he really does that. And Berezovsky eventually goes into exile and dies. Yeah, my understanding is that the dynamic kind of flips where the oligarchs are serving at the pleasure of Putin in some ways when he's in charge. 
Yeah, it was a much different relationship. Um, and people like Beresovsky obviously suffered as a result, but people like Roman Abramovich, who were able to exist, coexist with Putin, uh, continued to thrive. Abramovich, he was an early business partner of Boris Berezovsky, stayed certainly on good terms with Putin. He served as governor of this really remote state in like Eastern Siberia, where he would like commute from Alaska and eventually became the face of this new Russian oligarchy that was like moving its money outside of the country to places like London, to places like Manhattan. Abramovich famously bought the soccer team uh, Chelsea based in London and and pumped tons of tons of millions of dollars into that club. Um, you know, he has his yachts and he has his jets and, and he has his art museums and, and things like that. Um, so he uh, he was very much a winner of, of that. Roman Abramovich has moved so much of his money to the U.S. that back in 2013, then New York City mayor Mike Bloomberg hosted a dinner in his honor. And I mean, everybody was there. Leonardo DiCaprio was there. Gail King was there. Uh, Jared Kushner was, of course, there. And, you know, they, they all got together to celebrate Roman Abramovich and, and his incredible benevolent stewardship of, of the arts. And uh, Bloomberg, you know, said a few words and, and he, you know, he thanked Abramovich and, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm making you an honorary citizen of New York. And then he turned and, and said, like, we need a we need a translator. You know, Roman's going to have a heart attack thinking he has to pay taxes. Yikes. I thought that was really striking because the whole point of of this system is that it's actually a way to avoid kind of ever really having to pay taxes. This dinner, Tim says, it's an example of how Russian and American oligarchs work together to protect each other's wealth. In fact, Michael Bloomberg thought attracting the rich was part of his job as mayor, that it was good for the city. He said so on his weekly radio show. If we could get every billionaire around the world to move here, it would be a godsend. Tim says this point of view typifies the way American power doesn't just host foreign cash, it courts it. Bloomberg was very, he wasn't just defensive. He was, he was kind of defiantly like proud of, of, of this and, and the way that New York was sort of commanding this market. Um, you know, he, he he wished more billionaires could come here from Russia and, and put their money um, there. And in 2013, it was probably a high watermark of, of that because, you know, after 2014, you start to get sanctions. And, and then, of course, during the, the, the kind of Russiagate era, you get sanctions. And, and in 2022, the hammer comes down even harder. Um, but, but for a time, that was really you know, that, that speech, I think, really typified the welcome mat that was laid out um, in the United States in, in, a, in a, a public, formal way, um, in addition to the kind of informal arrangements. I'm wondering if we can just lay out how the Russian oligarchy became so intertwined with the United States. You've basically argued that American systems are engineered to process wealth. And so once money began flowing outside of Russia itself— it made a kind of sense that it came here. Can you explain how the U.S. got like this? Yeah, to understand how um, the U.S. just became this incredible destination for the world's wealth, you know your money's safe here. Uh, you know the courts will 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 be courts. Um, so going back to you know the the turn of the last century, uh, you know states you know, like New Jersey kind of came up with the the shell company and then Delaware came up with like an even better version of of the shell company in which you could just have total secrecy for for your company. 
And a shell company just means you can like technically have your headquarters somewhere like Delaware, but you're not really doing much there. So it's a place to park your money. Yeah. And it's very striking. I mean, this is like Delaware's economy. It's like toll booths and and LLCs. Um, and it's something where Delaware, by virtue of of lowering the bar this far, has kind of made any other laws kind of irrelevant on that front. Like, I mean, it doesn't matter if Massachusetts is like, you have to list all your directors or whatever. Like, Delaware sets the bar for for how companies will be run in that respect. And South Dakota has done the same thing with trusts, where you'll essentially have your money like anonymously tax-free in perpetuity. And that's like an incredible tool for not just one generation of wealth, but just for a billionaire extending their fortune forever, which is why uh, the very, very, very top of the 1% now has more wealth than proportionately than they did during the Gilded Age. There are a lot of different ways that the international elite can grow their money once it's safely stashed in the U.S. But there is one sector in particular that Tim says has been a magnet for foreign riches, real estate. That's because unlike other investments, real estate does not have the usual disclosure requirements. When I think about like what I have to do to rent an apartment in New York City compared to like, I think what you could do if you were paying in cash through an offshore account and you wanted to buy something in Manhattan or or Miami or something like that, then, you know, I think there's a real difference there. Sea levels notwithstanding, I mean, these are like extremely, you know, protected assets, like your money's in a good place, even if you put it you know, in a place like Dubai or something, those aren't like democratic governances. It's still kind of at the whims of of the the government. But, you know, the U.S.'s stability and, and kind of legal system and, and everything like that is extremely appealing to overseas money because you know that your investment will be safe there unless Putin eventually invades Ukraine a second time and, and the government really does crack down on it and start to follow the money and then it will take your penthouse. When we come back, a closer look at the American oligarchs who are benefiting from these same unregulated systems. Okay, so we've laid out how interdependent Russian and American wealth are, but you also argue that the U.S. has its own oligarchic class. And I wonder if we can shift talking about that. I guess my first question is, do you think the American oligarchy that you've been looking into is new? Is there something new happening here? In one sense, it's very old because this is very much, to me, it feels like a, I'm not saying anything new here. It's like a new Gilded Age, uh, but but kind of dumber in, in a way. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, at least Andrew Carnegie was building libraries. And I think some of this new oligarchic class is kind of thinks that books are just a thing that should be mined for, you know, future machine learning operations. Or burned. Or burned. <laughs> and, you know, in, in one sense, we're in kind of this this throwback. Um, and, and there's kind of parallels in, in terms of the notoriety and the control that, that this, say, big tech oligarch class wields today to, to what the railroad barons or whoever did back then. But also, it's unlike anything we've seen in a very long time for the simple fact that the actual kind of growth of the American billionaire class has just gotten astronomical. So 
we are talking about kind of a new phenomenon powered by, you know, an ability to kind of circumvent taxes and, and grow your money forever, powered by like the collapse of, of any kind of like, um, you know, anti-monopolistic regulation un- until quite recently, um, so that you're able to just grow these incredibly enormous, you know, everything companies, uh, to use the, the Amazon term. Yeah, if you had to list the American oligarchs who are like top of mind for you, would it be Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, like mostly tech guys? Yeah, I mean, if you look at just like, you know, say the Bloomberg billionaire index or whatever, and it's dominated by Americans, and then those Americans are tech billionaires. And you branch out as as you go further into hedge funds and, and things like that. But yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley's sort of wealth and growth and, and wealth and the concentration and kind of individuals is is like something I don't think we've ever seen before. Just, you know, the the wealth of Jeff Bezos and the scope of Amazon, you know, the wealth of Elon Musk and he controls more than half the satellites in the entire night sky is just an incredible kind of monopolistic power. Uh, just the wealth from seemingly nothing for seemingly nothing uh, of Mark Zuckerberg. And these figures, you know, are are sort of not just content to have all this money or to pass it on through dynastic trusts or, or things like that. I mean, they're very much interested in using this money and, and, and leveraging it. You've called the system extractive here. Do you want to explain that a bit, like how you see it? Yeah, and I think that's something where there there is this kind of parallel to the Russian system. I think there's this like sense, and not entirely wrong, that you know these Russian oligarchs have like all made their money in zinc. Um, you know, everybody has made their money in some kind of natural resource extraction. Um, you know, oil or aluminum or, or things like that. And, and these American billionaires aren't, for the most part, you know, running zinc mines, but like they've pioneered this extractive economy of a different sort that's mining like you. It's mining the public realm as a concept, you know, whether that's like taking your data, whether that's, you know, taking your tax money, whether that's taking something that used to be kind of like a public space and and converting it into like this privatized space. It's this economy that's kind of derivative. People often wonder like what it's actually producing, but very much is inescapable on a day-to-day basis. If there is one aspect of this homegrown oligarchy that is uniquely American, Tim says it might be how the rich foist their own interests onto society at large, in part through philanthropy. Which is the means by which they can, again, often instead of paying taxes to the government for public services, they can just not do that and they can just set up like you know, the Dr. Evil Foundation. (laughs) Please don't call it that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that might be a tell, but like they decide they want to reinvent education along their own ideological line or they want to reinvent public health along their own like personal fancy or or they just want to like, you know, reshape how, you know, the hiring decision is done at their alma mater. You know, they can act as these one man kind of political operations with the budget of a state. It's kind of a something that the American system uniquely produces and something that you've seen with some of these American oligarchs is this stated ambition to have this kind of like feudal relationship. Like Elon Musk wants to create company town in Texas, um, you know, like uh, like Mark Andreessen 
and a few other folks were were teaming up to start a new city entirely in California. A lot of these people entertain these real world building dreams that they're not necessarily pursuing through presidential politics, although some of them obviously have, uh, but they're pursuing just in the way that the United that the U.S. system allows through through philanthropy or through um, investments or things like that. I wonder a little bit whether you partially hope that by changing how Americans talk about oligarchy, like being more straight about it, you might also change what they want to do about oligarchy. Like right now, I feel like it is a pejorative. It's something that people of any political affiliation will throw around at the other guy. I wonder if part of what you're trying to do with your reporting is be like, no, 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 we need to think about it differently because that'll help us decide what to do. But yeah, I mean, I think like being able to just say not just that this person's very rich, but like this person is like an entire center of gravity. Like this, you know, this 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 person has reshaped like everything in their orbit, you know, like in their image that this person is has a different relationship to not just politics, but like the way that you kind of live on a day-to-day basis than like a regular rich person would. Elon Musk is a great example of that. I mean, if like you use the internet, you're sort of stuck living like with Elon Musk in a way. If you buy products in the world, like Jeff Bezos is somebody that cannot help but be like a force in your life. I mean, if you cross the street, like you have to navigate Amazon trucks and everything like that. I mean, there's this level of like ubiquity that like we should be talking about, you know, that goes beyond the simple like data points about like the top 1% and everybody else that there's like something specific about sort of this wealth and like where it's headed if we don't kind of try and rein it in. Being an oligarch isn't just about like having money. It's about what you're doing with that money and what you're wielding it for. Um, I don't think we're trying to say that Taylor Swift shouldn't exist, but maybe like several generations down, it would be ideal if the Swift clan wasn't worth like $50 billion because they had their money in a dynastic trust. Tim Murphy, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Tim Murphy is a national correspondent at Mother Jones. And that, that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out how. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.